I want to take you back to April 17th, 1970. It's quite a moment in American history. In the past year and a half, there's been a moon landing, Woodstock, and the inauguration of Richard Nixon. It's a month before the Kent State shootings, and you're in the Cornell University Fieldhouse, known as Barton Hall, the very room in Ithaca, New York, where in just a few years, the Grateful Dead will record their greatest live album of all time. I mean, just have a listen. Now, to be clear, the Grateful Dead weren't there that day. They wouldn't play Barton Hall until 1977. But we're going to let them play in the background as we recreate what we think it felt like that day back in 1970. Because it was a similar experience. Barton Hall was packed as if for a rock concert. Around 10,000 people had crammed into this cavernous room for one of the biggest and most radical Passover satyrs of all time. Now, usually, the Seder is just a traditional meal around a family dining room table. But this Seder was more like a political rally in which the liturgy about the Jews' exodus from Egypt was turned into a rallying cry against the war in Vietnam and against racism in the United States. The Jews who were there that day would surely recognize the Seder from the traditional one that they knew from their grandparents' house. The basics were all there. For one thing, up on stage, there was a Jewish man. His name was Arthur Waskow, reading from the Haggadah, the Seder book. But some things were very different. Sure, down in the crowd, wine, matzah, and horseradish were passed around on paper plates. But there was probably some cannabis thrown in for good measure. And the crowd, it included Jews, of course, but also plenty of Gentiles. There were students, radicals, hippies, hangers-on, and also people were sure of it undercover FBI agents, all of them waiting for one man, Cornell Catholic chaplain and famous peace activist, Father Daniel Berrigan. Berrigan was, right at that time, on the lam for burning Vietnam draft records. He'd been out of town, but a rumor had spread that he was going to show up at the Seder. At one point, on stage, one of the Seder leaders welcomed the spirit of the prophet Elijah into the gym. And as he did, a man in the crowd disguised in a motorcycle helmet and sunglasses, rose and slowly ascended the stairs to the stage. He took his helmet off, but kept the shades on. This was Father Berrigan. The room erupted with cheering and flurries of motion as students rushed to protect Berrigan from the FBI agents they were sure had infiltrated the event and would whisk Father Berrigan away. As it happened, no FBI agents materialized. And the main thing that people remembered from the whole event, besides Berrigan's surprise appearance, was the Seder itself. This went down in history as Cornell's 1970 Freedom Seder. One part ritual, one part protest, one part rock concert.
I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is Gatecrashers, Episode 6, Cornell and its off-campus, off-kilter Jewish commune. I'm going to tell you a story about some Jews at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, in the fall of 1970. They did something that a few years earlier would never have happened. But in the time of freedom satyrs, it made all the sense in the world. What they did was something no college Jews had done before them, and as far as I can tell, it's something that no college Jews do today. They got an off-campus house together, on their own, with no deans or resident advisors or national organizations overseeing them. They created a Jewish house, a house for Jews. So if what we're talking about on this episode is a little Jewish commune in upstate New York, Why did we start with an event from the semester before the house even got going? I wanted to start with the Freedom Seder because it really shows you the spirit of Cornell's campus in 1970, a spirit that permeates the rest of our story. If you want to know what Cornell Jews were thinking in 1970, what their influences were, you have to reckon with the fact that their campus had just hosted a Seder that basically blew up the old model, a model of Passover that had existed for over 2,000 years. Now, as it happens, the Cornell event was not the first Freedom Seder. After Martin Luther King's murder in 1968, a Jewish activist named Arthur Waskow was inspired to create a new Haggadah, a new version of the book read aloud on Passover. His version included anti-war and anti-racist messages. And in 1969, in the basement of a black church in Washington, D.C., Waskow hosted a Seder with a universal message that wasn't just for Jews. He got an integrated crowd of about 800 people, Jews and Christians, whites and blacks. Then, a year later, at Cornell, students were looking to do something spiritual, but also politically radical. It had been a crazy year in Ithaca. A group of black students had occupied a campus building to protest racism on campus. And Father Berrigan had made national news by going on the run. With all of this going on, the students asked Arthur Waskow to come recreate his Freedom Seder at Cornell as part of a weekend honoring Father Berrigan. Waskow agreed. When he arrived, a few of the organizers met him at the airport, but in a sign of the times, they didn't take him right to campus. Here's Arthur Waskow, now Rabbi Arthur Waskow. When I got off the plane, they said, would you mind not going straight to the campus, but we want to go to the Cayuga River. When we got there, we got right close to the falls. So the roar of the falls was drowning out almost everything. The FBI was all over the campus. They wanted to be somewhere where they could talk with me and not be heard by the FBI. Carl Vineyard, who was a sophomore at the time, was there in Barton Hall, the indoor track facility where the Seder was held. So I came into the field house. There were students sitting and lying and walking around and smoking pot and having a drink and enjoying themselves. I do remember that I was one of the people surrounding the stage when the Freedom Seder was being done. Father Berrigan was brought in and people were asked to surround the stage. We had this thought that if there were enough of us there for the FBI and the police to wade through, they wouldn't want to cause a riot. It was a hotbed of radicalism. It wasn't just this. Just before we got there, Cornell students were freedom riders. One of the three slain civil rights workers was a Cornell student. Cornell was 
always a place that put out thinkers and people on the fringes wanting something done. It was a different time. Studies was not the most important thing. The world was burning, in our opinion. Thank you, thank you. That was the Jewish vibe on campus in April 1970. Being on campus for this massive event, a radical Catholic fugitive priest being celebrated with a timeless Jewish ritual, led by a cutting-edge, highly political, anti-war Jewish activist who got the idea because of Dr. King's murder, while meanwhile there are rumored to be FBI agents around, all of this got Jewish students thinking about how to live their Judaism, to make it matter every day. Here's Wasco. I sometimes thought of it like if you drop a crystal into a supersaturated solution, the whole solution crystallizes. And young Jews were a supersaturated solution. They were thirsty for something that would speak about their Jewishness without being stupid or silly or dead or meaningless. And we dropped the crystal and poof! Wow. That's right. Poof. Wow. Cornell had always been a pretty boring place to be a Jew. Like all the Ivy League schools, it had blips of anti-Semitism in its history. For example, in the 1940s, the Cornell provost had written to the president to warn him that they were hiring a Jewish political scientist who looked Jewish. And in 1947, A poll by the student newspaper, the Cornell Daily Sun, found that 43% of students wouldn't like having a Jewish roommate. But still, Cornell was probably the least snooty Ivy League school. It was big and pretty democratic, too. It's actually the only Ivy League school that's partly a state school because some of its programs, like its agriculture school, are state-supported. And what this democratic vibe meant was that you could sort of coast as a Jew at Cornell you could have a totally fine experience without ever really being super Jewish or without ever being called out for being Jewish. So this freedom seder and the black activism and civil rights, it kind of blew everyone's minds, the Jews included. And for Jews, all this energy tapped into a wider Jewish counterculture arising across the country. So if you were a Cornell Jewish undergrad in 1970, what were you gonna do with all of this? Now, the Cornell administration was stuck back in the 1950s, but the students were not. Here's Naomi Gutman-Bass, Cornell class of 1971. Okay, well, well, you have to remember the times. We had the Vietnam War, and I, I spent two years in the dorms under in loco parentis, and the protests of the war and staying out all night, and that, it just, it broke it, okay? We were independent. We no longer, you know, wanted Cornell or or the college to tell us what to do or where to live. It was kind of a liberation from all the old rules. I'd never been attracted by the sororities or any any of that kind of stuff. But I did want to live in in a community. Gutman Bass had heard about a new experiment in off-campus Jewish living. It was called the Cornell Chavara, and she was intrigued. And so I decided to join in, and it's fun to try something new. Each group in the Chavara year after year, reinvent it 
you know, each group decides what its rules and obligations are going to be. And so, you know, it was kind of an anti-establishment establishment, which is great for me. An anti-establishment establishment. What a terrific description of the Havara concept. At Cornell, young countercultural Jews established a Havara. It's spelled H-A-V-U-R-A-H. And it literally means a fellowship. But it's basically a Jewish communal house with prayer, study, and singing. The Havara was a residential component of the Jewish counterculture, a larger movement that included Jewish feminism and a Jewish anti-war movement. At this time of great turmoil in the country and great turmoil in the Jewish world, Jewish students at Cornell responded by seeking shelter from the storm together. Just getting an off-campus house together may not seem like much, but to live intentionally, communally as Jews was a brave and original act in 1970. For one thing, it was a statement of ethnic and religious pride. A group of college students who didn't want to assimilate, to run away from their Jewishness, or to be Jewish once a week or twice a year, but actually wanted to live it every day. And as the rotating cast of residents proved over the years to come, a Jewish house can be a space where Jews of all kinds, of all political persuasions and sexual orientations, and of every shade of religious observance could find themselves and could find joy with others. So the Jewish counterculture was very much related to the general American student protests of the late 60s and early 70s. This is Rena Sigmund Friedman, class of 76. She never lived in the Cornell Havara, but her future husband did, and she visited the house all the time. She now teaches Jewish history at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in Philadelphia. Many people who were involved in the Jewish counterculture were also involved in this other student protests like the anti-war movement and interfaith activities and various aspects of civil rights. You know, many of them had been involved in these movements and many of them were involved in the women's movement too. I wouldn't say it was very confrontational, but there was certainly a challenge to the established Jewish organizations and institutions of the American Jewish community. The time had come for students who were proudly Jewish but also deeply influenced by the American counterculture to make a space of their own, without a rabbi, without any national organization or school supervision. A Havara could be just a fellowship or friendship group, but the idea of a residential Havara was to get a house or apartment and use it as a living space, a space for worship, Shabbat dinners, classes, political organizing, everything. Friends, if you like what you're hearing on Gatecrashers, you might also like another podcast that I host. Unorthodox is the universe's leading Jewish podcast, and each week, my co-hosts, Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz, and I discuss the news of the Jews, and we interview two guests, one Jewish and one a Gentile of the week. We talk to fascinating people. Some of our guests have included comedian Judy Gold, Congresswoman Katie Porter, authors like A.J. Jacobs, Chuck Klosterman, and more. Guys, this show is a lot of fun. It's irreverent, but not silly, at least not most of the time, and it will always get you thinking. You can find Unorthodox, a Tablet Studios production, wherever you listen to podcasts. Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. In 1968, in Somerville, outside Boston, a group of countercultural Jews started Havarat Shalom, which is still going, by the way. 
In New York City, at about the same time, the New York Havara started. In Washington, D.C., in 1971, there was a new Havara that called itself Verbrengen. And the idea was spreading to college campuses. It had reached Ithaca, New York, where students saw that the time had come. The time for J.I.Y., Jew-it-yourself Judaism. The time for the Havara. One of the founders of the Havara at Cornell was Judy Firestein. My name is Judy Firestein, and I graduated with a bachelor's from Cornell in 1972. I think those were the days of when people were becoming hippies, so I was definitely in that direction. I was wearing bell-bottom pants. Uh, instead of a coat, I was wearing like a cape, and I think my hair was in braids. There was a lot of drinking. I think I was more finding my way through marijuana. Judy Firestein didn't really like the environment in the dorms or the restrictions. I had no patience. I thought it was all BS. You could have a guy visit you in your dorm room only on certain hours on certain weekdays, but there had to be three feet on the ground at all times. That was Cornell's policy as far as male and female students being in the same room. My head was in a very different place of wanting to feel like I had a community there, and certainly dorm life didn't provide that. Cornell was a large campus in a small town, and it could be hard to find your place. Firestein wasn't finding it in dorms or sororities or any of the traditional campus structures. She tried joining SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, but found it too radical. The Orthodox Young Israel House on campus was all male, so that was out. Judy was stuck, but she had a friend at Cornell from back in her summer camp days, a student named Martha Zaslow, known to all as Marty, and they started talking the same semester as the Freedom Seder, about a new kind of off-campus living, some sort of havara. We put an ad or a note in the local campus newspaper, and that brought forth some interested fellow students of all ages, including graduate students. Uh, most of us didn't know each other, and we held a meeting or two, and we decided to create our own co-op. We wanted it to have a Jewish flavor. We wanted it to be kosher. We wanted it to be egalitarian. And we didn't want it to be religious. We didn't want to impose services. So we knew that what to look for. We knew how many rooms, and we found a house. While Judy and Marty and their friends didn't want to impose any sort of religiosity on the house, they definitely wanted Jewish culture, which they felt was sorely lacking on campus. If you weren't Orthodox and if you didn't go to services, you really didn't have um, any other way of affiliating Jewishly. While there were a lot of Jews there, it didn't feel at all like a Jewishly positive environment. And fortunately, there was this model out there, the Havara, a Jewish fellowship outside synagogue structure, where Jews, mostly college or grad school aged, would come together for prayer at times, but also for classes, meals, hiking, folk singing, basically to lead their lives together. The Chavura movement had already begun in more prominent cities, Boston, New York, and elsewhere. So there was already a sense that this is the way for human beings to live. Once they had an initial group of 10 or 12 students who wanted to make this work, there was a lot to decide. For one thing, they weren't all alike. There was friction. They had to work out who would do the cooking and the cleaning and bring the Shabbat candles. But things came together, and in the fall of 1970, this small group moved into a two-story house on North Quarry Street. 
They put a mezuzah on the door. They started bringing in kosher meat from a supplier, often Syracuse. They hung some beaded curtains, put up some posters on their walls. The Cornell Havara was born. Naomi Gutman Bass, whom we heard from earlier, had grown up in Manhattan, attending a Reconstructionist Jewish congregation with her family. When she got to Cornell, she was looking to hang with similarly progressive Jews. And like a lot of prospective Havara members, Gutman Bass felt that Hillel wasn't really her scene. It was a little square. But the Hillel rabbi, Morris Goldfarb, told her that some sort of Havara was forming. So she went to a meeting. And I really liked the people, and, and I liked the idea of it. And I was interested. I was curious to sort of live the Jewish life. Gutman Bass remembered that from the very moment they moved in together, the Havara was a fun place to do Jewish. That was something that was really wonderful for me about the Havara. Friday nights, we would just sit and, and sing, and it was just incredible. You know, the Katamazon, and then all, all the songs afterwards, and it was just a high. And then we would all kind of uh, gather around, sit down, and, and we'd have the brachot and the tilot and lighting candles and, and, and all that and getting us into the mood and talking. And there was a lot of music, as I said. Judy um, has a wonderful voice and played guitar and so much laughter. No TV and no, no smartphones. They didn't exist at the time. And yeah, it was just, uh, you know, kind of living it. Living the experience of, of, of being Jewish in a warm environment and um, celebrating every Friday night. The communal vibe wasn't just Friday nights. It was all the time. They didn't have a lot of rules. It was just, you know, consideration for others. And everybody was great. Seven guys, three girls. Nobody paired off or anything. I don't know if there was a rule about that, but it just, it just didn't happen within the group. And, you know, you had to do the shopping. You had a rotation on the shopping and the cleaning and the cooking. And, and that was pretty much it. The food was kosher, and I think for Friday night we kept Shabbat, but I think that if on Saturday you wanted to be in your own room or go out or something, it wasn't wasn't an issue. So, so there were very few rules, and, and it was just, uh, you know, learning to live as a little community and share these incredible experiences. Gutman Bass only lived in the Havara for one semester, then graduated in December 1971. But the Havara plays such a big role in her college memory. Among other things, it's where she learned to be the kind of Jew that she still is today, decades after moving to Israel. For example, growing up in Manhattan, I had never built a sukkah. The first sukkah that I actually helped build was, was at the Chavua. We, it was this, we had this big white house with uh, 10 bedrooms. Everybody had their own bedroom. And we built a sukkah. And I think that was the year that there was actually snow on the sukkah. I had never seen snow on the sukkah. Person after person had this kind of story about their time in the Cornell Havara. Small moments that revealed just how nice it could be to live, all 10 or 12 together, in a rundown abode down the hill from campus. Here's Judy Firestein, the co-founder. We needed to have a place where we could have a, build a sukkah, but I think the first year that we did it, a couple of guys decided that they had to sleep in it, except that there was a snowstorm. And so they came in with their frosty white snow-covered sleeping bags during the middle of the morning. And um, every night, two different people would be on kitchen duty. I remember one time, two guys decided to try to make a dinner with like beans or something. And I think they tried to cook it on the radiators as a ex scientific experiment, which failed. So I think we landed up eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for that meal and laughing a lot.
From the beginning, the Jewish counterculture contained two impulses, one inward-looking and spiritual, the other looking outward towards social action. For Havara Jews, a couple issues dominated their thinking in the early 1970s. For one thing, they were swept up in the movement to liberate Jews in the Soviet Union. And they were riveted by coverage of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Here's Rena Sigmund Friedman, who hung out at the Havara and with some of its members helped found Kolenu, an alternative Jewish newspaper. I was very caught up in the Yom Kippur War. I think we all were. Throughout the Yom Kippur War, we were informing people of what was going on and trying to raise money to send to Israel. It was, it was a time of a lot of anxiety about Israel's existence. These students were, by and large, concerned with Palestinian rights. But overwhelmingly, they identified as Zionists, and they were scared for the fate of Israel. Howard Adelman lived in the Havara in the fall of 1973, after a semester on a kibbutz in Israel. He'd gone to Israel in part to stay one step ahead of the draft. I think one of the key differences between then and now is that there was no real discussion about Israel. Israel in 1973 was totally virtuous, totally right. There were no other really optional thought patterns about it, unlike on campuses today. It was a a period of great innocence and of great harmony among Jewish students. Adelman said that the Havara became a focal point for Jewish solidarity during the war. And I remember a, a lot of students who didn't live in the Havara coming to the Havara because they felt that that was a, a place where Jews could hang out during the war and share whatever feelings they had. The Havara hosted rap sessions on Jewish ethics, a Hebrew Bible study group, an American-Israeli discussion group, and one Jewish mysticism event to which, quote, all Kabbalists, mystics, spiritualists, believers, and non-believers are welcome and invited. And then, around 1976, the Cornell Havara, this independent hotspot in Cornell's Jewish life, died, as far as we can tell closed up shop, went out of business, went to meet its maker. It's impossible to say how an off-campus living experiment winds down. Was it with a whimper? Did some key members just drop out? Or maybe the house's owner just kicked everyone out to do a remodel? Or did it end with a bang? Maybe a big fight over whether to put more organic rice on the menu and dishes were smashed, the dog cowered in the kitchen and the vibe was ruined forever. I tried to find out what happened, but I couldn't. Maybe one of you listeners knows what happened to the first iteration of the Cornell Havara, the one that lasted from 1970 to 1976. If you do, tell us. You'll notice that I said first iteration of the Cornell Havara. Why first iteration, you might ask? Because as it turns out, in 1977, apparently with no knowledge that there had been an earlier Havara maybe less than a year before, a group of Jewish students founded a second Cornell Havara, one that lasted until the early 90s. Cornell just couldn't quit its Havarot. When I showed up at Cornell, I was terrified. 
This is Naomi Levy, Cornell class of 84. It all just seemed like a very alien, very Gentile environment. And I just didn't know how I was gonna make it through. Havarat 2.0 was designed for someone like Levy. When I heard that there was such a thing called the Chavura, I was like, oh my God, I hope I can live there. I hope that they'll invite me. I hope somebody graduates. I hope that there'll be a space. She remembers hearing that she got in. I just thought like I died and went to heaven. <laughs> in a lot of ways, this second Havara, which many of its members called the Hav, was exactly like the first Havara. Here's Joe Avni Singer, who came to Cornell a year after leaving. You know, it was very Hamish. Like, there were 10 people who lived in the house, and it was a co-op, and that fit with my values. And it wasn't a building. It was a, a kind of a rundown college student slum. I mean, it was very rundown. Everything was done cooperatively. So, like any good co-op, the place was a mess. People had dinner together every single day, and it was low-key. It wasn't, like, serious, super observant. People could kind of live the way they wanted to live. And it just was kind of very warm and family-like. And it was Shabbat dinner, and that was appealing. And, you know, people did other things to the extent they were interested in. There was a big, big range of practices and interests, but it felt very at home. But the second Havara was also different in some key ways. For one thing, this Hav wasn't quite as political or countercultural. For a lot of these students, Hillel, the campus organization, was no longer so square. Naomi Levy and one of her housemates, Sherry Edelstein, were high up in Hillel leadership. But even if it didn't have the anti-establishment feeling of the first Havara, the second Hav had a very similar family vibe. You can just hear, listening to former Hav members, what a joy it was to live at 517 East Buffalo Street. We talked to a bunch of them. Here's some of what they had to say. It was like halfway down this very steep hill, which wasn't always fun because you had to climb it in the snow and in the ice. First of all, the house was kind of a dump. Pulling things together from garage sales and it was very eclectic. Everything was run down, everything was broken, all the appliances, so everything was jerry-rigged. My parents initially were kind of appalled. Not that I was living in a co-ed co-op, but that the place was a fire trap. It was beat up, let's just say, but it was home. We didn't answer to anybody. I think it took a little bit of a while to kind of get a rhythm. Like, how do you run a household like this? I actually found some handwritten weekly menus. You know, one night was meatloaf, rice, and string beans. Another night is tuna noodle casserole. Yeah, it was definitely kosher. Probably 80% vegetarian. You know, there was a lot of that Moosewood cookbook, which, by the way, the Moosewood restaurant is in Ithaca. You know, so everybody came together for dinner time. The windows fogging and, you know, we would be singing around the table and... I mean, we, we would just be there for hours. Eating, talking, singing, relaxing with each other. Here we are in this little frozen outpost somewhere, but we still have these things that tie us together to each other and to our faith. It helped define a feeling of Jewish living. One of those voices we just heard was Bruce Temkin, class of 86. I don't actually know the history, but by the time I had found it, it was like, this is the only place for me. I lasted one semester in the dorms. I was like, I can't, you know, this is not for me. It was a rundown building on Buffalo Street. Temkin got to Cornell after taking time off after high school to travel, live on a kibbutz, and dance ballet in Israel. When Temkin got to Cornell, 
he quickly found his home in the off-campus Hav. It proved the right place for him as a liberal Zionist and as a gay man to come out. One other thing that I would say that I then became obsessed with and which was very important to both my Jewish and Cornell experiences, starting my, really my freshman year, I came out of the closet as a gay man. I think I was attracted to it because it was the, it wasn't necessarily counterculture, but it was a progressive, alternative places where I could feel really comfortable with my progressive views around Israel and America and coming out. You know, I came out when I was there and I came out in the house and it was a really welcoming community. And of course, Temkin had to be okay with living conditions that were no fancier than in the old Havara. Really felt like if you pushed hard enough, certain doors or windows would fall apart. We didn't have the same set of silverware and nobody had the same plates and there were chairs that were like literally held together with scotch tape. But Temkin loved this sense of disorder, of chaotic, buzzing activity. So it felt like there was ne almost never a time when you would walk into the house after classes and nobody was home. When you would walk into the house, there was somebody there you didn't know. I'm so-and-so's girlfriend. So-and-so told me I could crash here. We're waiting for the Jewish feminist workshop to begin. What do we make of the fact that the first Jewish Havara at Cornell lasted from 1970 to 1976? And then there was a second iteration on East Buffalo Street that started up a year later in 1977 and lasted until about 1990. For one thing, it seems that people like living this way. People are happier when they eat together, when they have someone to watch TV with or play cards with late at night. If 10 people live together and one of them has a guitar and another has a chess set, and another has <clears throat> a bong, well, the good times never end. And if you're sad, it's nice to have people to turn to. In some countries, it's not seen as weird to live in communal or co-housing situations. Even after the heyday of the kibbutz, Israel still has more communal living than we do. In the United States, we give college students a version of this with dormitories, but that just infantilizes them. It doesn't allow them to create their own world. The 1970s were the peak era for experiments in communal living, and also the peak era for Jewish houses, or Havaraz. The real Hebrew plural is Havarot. They existed on numerous campuses 50 years ago. But as far as I can tell, they exist nowhere today. If you find Jewish living spaces at colleges today, they're probably fraternities or sororities. There is no group of independent-minded Jewish undergrads who have just gotten a house together so they can cook Jewish, pray Jewish, sing Jewish, and live Jewish under one roof. Why not? If it's such a happy way to live, why is nobody doing it? For one thing, young people today are younger. They have less courage than 25 or 50 years ago. Running a house cooperatively, cooking and cleaning, not to mention making decisions about which melodies to use for prayers, is hard work. People fight, they have fallings out, and they have to figure out how to keep going. Also, today's students want more safety. And so do their parents, who'd rather put them in doorman buildings than in run-down old houses a mile from campus. But there's more. On some campuses, Jewish students living together would be seen as elitist or exclusionary. Instead of being seen as proud of their own tradition, they'd be accused of avoiding multiculturalism or running from integration with others. Finally, 
Conflicts over Israel and domestic politics would make it hard to find 10 or 12 students willing to work out their differences as housemates. I worry that a Havara today would fall apart over Zionism or fights over orthodoxy versus liberalism. Still, listening to those Havara alumni, it all sounds pretty great. I don't know about you, but I just have to hope that there's a third Cornell Havara coming, just waiting for the next generation of college Jews who don't want to rely on grown-ups to teach them how to live. One day, I feel sure of it. Some Jews with a Jew-it-yourself spirit will get a house, a house held together by rubber bands and scotch tape, and fill it with the sounds and smells of Friday night dinner. Meanwhile, the old Cornell Havaraz, both of them, live on in the memories of the members. Many of them spent time in Israel, and Judy Firestein, one of the Havara founders, now lives in an Israeli co-housing community. We were almost a dozen people, and um, some of our ties continue to this day. So this is like 50 years later as we speak, and yeah, some of those relationships became lifetime friendships. During Corona, I arranged for the four or so of us original Havra members who live in Israel to reconnect. I hadn't seen one of them for 50 years because he just made Aliyah this year. And it was just a pleasure to reconnect and we couldn't stop talking to each other. <laughs> and here's Joe Abney Singer, who lived in the second Hav. It shaped me for beyond college life. I mean, it had a lasting influence on who I was, it still does. It was a great way to live. I mean, we were, it was a combination of being like a little bit grown up but not too grown up, but we really, you know, we were there for each other and it, and we had to, you know, take care of the place such as it was. Um, it was a great thing to do. And finally, Bruce Temkin. Yeah, and I remember we would visit other homes or other people who had off-campus homes and some of them lived in these elegant, gorgeous, you know, huge seal, and I was like, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, it's the people in the home. It's not the home. Please join us next time around the Havara dinner table for Gatecrashers Episode 7, Penn and the Great Sorority Coup of 1987. Gatecrashers is a podcast from Tablet Studios. The show is written and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer. This episode is based on extensive reporting by Robert Scaramuccia. Our executive producers are Josh Cross, Stephanie Butnick, and Leah Leibowitz. The show is produced, engineered, and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller, with help from Ellie Blyer. Leon Crane is our research assistant. The Havara members you heard from in that montage were Naomi Levy, Susan Lehman, Richard Lehman, Sherry Edelstein, Bruce Temkin, Joe Avni Singer, Alan Edelman, and Erica Edelman. Two of the songs you heard were from that Grateful Dead concert at Cornell on May 8, 1977. The first one was Fire on the Mountain, and the second was Not Fade Away. Special thanks to Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Sarah Fredman Ader, and Daron Rusquet of Tablet Studios. Alana Newhouse, Morty Landown, Wayne Hoffman, Samantha Hacker, Kurt Hoffman, and all the staff at Tablet Magazine. 
and Christine Ragasa and Megan Larson, Seth Higgins, Cody Fitzpatrick, and Peter Fox. Also, special thanks to Rabbi Larry Edwards, Susanna Cohen, and Glenn Altshuler, whose book on the history of Cornell was exceedingly helpful. And for all these episodes, we relied on the work of historians Jerome Carabell and Marcia Sinnott. Please do go rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoyed this series, tell a friend. Do you have a story you want to share or a comment to make? Were you in the Cornell Havara, the first or the second? Please write to us at gatecrashers at tabletmag.com or leave us a voice memo at 917-310-0456. Remember to tell us your name and how we can get in touch with you. For more information about the show, check out tabletmag.com slash gatecrashers. For more from Tablet Studios, visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. You know, every once in a while, I'll run across someone who says, I never got high, who's my age, and I'm surprised.